Hello and welcome back to Learn It From a Layman. I am Carl Christensen. I'm back with Matt and Tim will be joining us later if we allow it, which we'll be taking a vote. Um, and I can tell you which way my vote will go. But uh, today's subject will be uh, the basics of guns. Yeah, gun history, firearm gun history. history. Yeah, but firearm is not a layman word. Uh, um, there's multiple words in that word. I think, I think we need to give the layman slightly more credit here. <laughs> okay, that's probably true. It's probably just not a word that I use frequently. So, okay, Matt's going to tell us about the history of firearms. So, Matt, where did uh, where did these things get started? Uh, in in China. Much is most thought? most things got started in China. And that concludes our podcast, yeah. <laughs> so we'll, we'll do a little bit. We'll talk about, uh, you know, some of the characteristics of a firearm. We'll talk about their the history of major firearms development, given that firearms development has been going on for many centuries. We are not going to cover everything, and we're not even going to cover all of the most recent stuff, but we'll point out some of the big things. And then uh, we'll have a short question and answer session at the end, which uh, we'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so what is a firearm? There is a hint in the name. Fire on your arm. Yes. Well, that's that's more or less how it started out uh, in China with the fire lance. But we'll come back to that. Um, Today, a firearm means a device used to propel a projectile as a result of a of of a explosion or other kinetic event. Uh, and somebody, some some enthusiast, right now is rapidly typing into our crowded comment section all about the arc flash uh, coil gun which is under development that does not use an explosive, but rather is actually a handheld railgun. And yes, that is awesome. It's also not a firearm. It's a railgun. Shut up. Anyway. Sounds like something from a video game. Uh, well, the thing is, the kids that grew up playing video games are now professional engineers building railguns. This is not the basics of railguns. Um, okay. This is the basics of firearms. And this right. started real, real quick. What is a railgun? Just curious. It's not a firearm. It probably is a firearm. <laughs> don't don't take my my definitions <laughs> for anything. Uh, a railgun, it, it or uh, we, we've already derailed. Um, but a railgun, and, and to some degree, <laughs> a coil a gun, gun, and all of these other types of guns use electromagnetic forces to propel your shot. In a railgun, they propel it down some rails, thus the name of the gun. But that is that. Uh, so, so it uses like magnetic, basically, magnetic force to to propel the bullet instead of yes. an explosion. Electromagnets. Okay. 
uh, in, meaning that your railgun works as long as it has batteries. Uh -huh. Whereas your traditional firearm works as long as there is a propellant that is able to be ignited. And in modern firearms, that is inside the cartridge uh, behind the bullet. And in primitive firearms, that was all over the place. Powder that you dumped down the barrel, powder that you dumped in a flash pan, powder that you dumped all over the place. Anyway, let's get back to the the uh, the characteristics of a firearm. Firearms these days consist of three major parts. There is the barrel, you know, the thing that your projectile travels down. There is the action, which is kind of the mechanical guts that are responsible for setting off the propellant. <clears throat> and then there is uh, the, the stock, which is basically the stuff that holds the gun together and by which the operator grips the firearm so or supports it <clears throat> so those those are your three main parts your your stock your action and your barrel and that's again when, when you have that combination of things that is used to propel a projectile as a result of some kind of propellant detonation you have a firearm. So with that, let's go back into the ancient history of firearms. And the first recorded firearms that we know about, or rather the, the predecessors to the first firearms, go all the way back to China. And this is around the 10th, 12th century-ish. Um, and it's called the Fire Lance. It's actually called a bunch of Chinese words that I do not know and could not pronounce, but roughly translated to fire lance. And it's pretty much what it sounds like. It's a lance with a bundle strapped on it near the near the the pointy bit. And that bundle includes some propellant powder and sometimes some shrapnel all wrapped up in like a bamboo tube or something. And, and you would light this off with a torch or whatever source of fire that you had. And it was basically a primitive, um, not quite flamethrower, uh, and also not quite a fireworks sparkler, but something in between. Uh, basically, you would get a big giant whoosh of flame coming off the end of your lance uh, that would go some feet, like, you know, a few meters, not much more than that. Uh, and that was the fire lance. And then after you had used that to shock and stun your enemy because your spear line that you're you're holding out against just exploded at you. And as soon as your eyes clear, they're now on top of you, lancing you to death. Um, anyway, that that was that was kind of where that started. And then after that, somebody thought, you know, if we just focused on the fire part, we could do away with this lance, and I bet we'd still have an effective weapon. And so that became the the first what they what we would classify as hand cannons, and they are literally that they are either bamboo or metal tubes filled with uh, powder, uh, a gunpowder or a propellant of some kind, some kind of combustible explosive material, with a bunch of crud up front, you know, shot or, or pellets or whatever, 
and you would touch this off with some kind of source of fire, literal fire, and it would explode out the end of your bamboo tube or your metal tube at your opponent. Hopefully your opponent is standing close enough to be damaged by this explosion and the shot that's going to come along with it. Um, and so that that was kind of your very first true firearm was the hand cannon, a natural evolution of the fire lance. Um, what what time period ahead. are we talking here? Uh, old, way uh, five hundred years ago, a thousand years no, ago, we're, almost a thousand. Um, sometimes a thousand. We're we're talking like tenth century to the I don't know. Um, you know, twelfth, thirteenth. Uh, it looks like the the fire lance got an upgrade from bamboo to metal in about the thirteenth century, and then um, your hand cannons. Your hand cannons were in use for hundreds of years after that, in one form or another, and they they really are the the simplest of firearms. It's a barrel. It's your your action is is not so much a thing here. Your action is the fact that you are applying fire to an explosive material, and you're doing this manually. Um, and I, I mean, I can imagine this is a ton of fun, but also a terrifying experience to be lighting off a a canister of explosive with a bunch of you know, bullet-like projectiles, sh shot-like projectiles that are going to come flying out the end of it. Um, very, very simple, very crude by today's standards, but but these are the first things. And the hand cannon is used from, well, for a while. I get in, in, in about the 15th century, you see the next evolution into what we would call the matchlock. And the matchlock firearm is a bit more elegant than a hand cannon because instead of lighting off your propellant charge by hand, um, you know, essentially, you, your fuse is now mounted into your firearm and you light a fuse or you light a match or you light something else, which then burns down and touches off the propellant rather than you igniting the propellant directly. So you're, you're now a little bit more complex. You have something to hold your fuse or your match or whatever, and you ignite that. It ignites your powder, which fires off your projectile through your barrel. And now we're into match locks. Um, and you can fire these things with, uh, with triggers, which is kind of cool. Before, you would just be you know, the, the gun goes off, the firearm goes off when the powder ignites and manually lighting it is, I, I can't imagine it was a precise science, but. Sounds uh, rife with uh, potential injury. Yeah, but with a matchlock, you're now uh, igniting this thing and then you use a trigger to move that source of fire down into often a flash pan, which has a little bit of powder in it. And then that ignites the main powder charge in the barrel, which sends the shot careening down the barrel and, and out. Um, usually these types of things are muzzle loaders, meaning that you put the shot 
know, you put the powder in and you put the shot in through the the opening of the muzzle and then you generally would have to put in some kind of wadding uh, cotton or paper or whatever to prevent all of that stuff from just falling out either that or you only ever shoot uphill um kidding maybe practical very yeah. practical so that's kind of the next evolution is the matchlock series of firearms and those eventually give way to the wheel lock and the wheel lock instead of using like a fuse or some other burning thing uses a friction wheel and when you pull the trigger you spin this little wheel around which grinds against whatever it grinds against creating a spark which will ignite your powder charge um, and these are used as as your standard firearm for a while and, and many of these things overlap all these different mechanisms um, your hand cannons, your match locks, your wheel locks. There, there are different advances at different times and in different reasons, and then they do overlap. You know, the world just didn't abandon all of their match locks one day and go to wheel locks. Um, but this is kind of the next major evolution, is using your trigger to spin a friction wheel to generate a spark on command. And this is nice because now you're not dealing with those... Uh, consumable fuses or or matches that you get with a match lock you're still dealing with consumable shots still dealing with consumable powder but your source of spark is that friction wheel and that's you know if, if not permanent it's a little longer lasting uh, and these came into being in you know around 1500 ish somewhere in there um so and and they serve for many years uh, until the next evolution, which is the flintlock. Are these evolutions in uh, technology um, all, I mean, we said it started in China. Is this, uh, is the evolution of the firearm <clears throat> mostly done in China as well? Or is this as it's being spread around different regions, you get uh, different uses? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. The hand cannon uh, seems to have been developed everywhere. The wheel lock was uh, appeared in, in Europe. And we could do a whole podcast on the basics of the transition of firearms from China to Europe. But um, unless you're an enthusiast, it would be boring. So let's not do that one. Okay. Uh, and, and I will admit, I just don't know. Uh, a whole lot about that topic. I do know the matchlock showed up in Europe in the 1500s-ish, okay. somewhere around then. Um, likewise, the flintlock. Uh, I believe that was. Uh, I'm not sure. I think that was that was a European invention. Yeah, I, I, that was that was a a French invention, uh, and this showed up in. You know, in the, uh, I guess, 17th-ish century. Uh, although there were devices that use similar principles um, earlier on in, uh, in the 1500s. Um, but the flintlock is, uh, operates in, in kind of a similar way in the sense that you use a chunk of flint. And when you pull the trigger, your spring-loaded mechanism snaps your flint down onto a striking surface where it creates a spark which sets off your powder which sets off your 
firearm. And that is that. And, and you have your little flint, you create your spark, it makes your shot. And the flintlock rifle, or not rifle, the flintlock firearm, we're, we're probably not into the point of rifles, um, is, is pretty popular for some hundreds of years. Uh, now, I mentioned rifles, and rifles denote a specific characteristic of a firearm. It, it denotes a firearm that has rifling in its barrel. And rifling uh, is, in terms of the history of firearms, is a relatively recent invention. And, you know, let's, let's actually talk about that a little bit later. But most of these guns, or the, these firearms back then, if you look at the barrel, they're all smooth. They're what we would call a smooth bore gun or firearm. Um, and your shot is going to be a roughly spheroid shape. And the the thing is, you can fire that, and you'll get some energy out of it, and you'll push that sphere out with uh, some force and some velocity. But it's not going to be the most aerodynamically stable thing, and it will go kind of in the direction you point it. And... Well, that's about the, the best that can be said for it. Um, let's actually do talk about rifling, because this is one of the next major advantages. Rifling is when you take that smooth barrel, and instead of letting it stay smooth, you cut spiral grooves all through it, uh, all along its length. And that groove is... Uh, the nature of that groove, its measurement, is defined by a, a twist ratio. How many full 360-degree twists you have in that rifling over the length of the barrel. And, you know, your, your rifles today will have a, a twist factor of whatever it is. But the thing is the, that those twisted grooves will impart a spin to your projectile. And a spinning projectile is more aerodynamically stable than a non-spinning projectile. And to go into why that is, see our advanced physics podcast, which we haven't made yet, where we talk all about angular momentum and stuff. Um, but that's the thing. When you see, um, when you watch a football game, and I'm talking real football involving uh, 100 yards and, you know, I, I mean American football. All of you out there thinking soccer is football, you're wrong. That's why we have a separate word for it. It's soccer. So when you're watching a football game and your quarterback throws the football <clears throat> with his hands, as you do in a football game, you'll notice that the football spins if it's a good quarterback. Um, and it and it spins in that kind of spiral pattern as it flies down to the receiver. Um the reason that they spin it is because that football in flight is more aerodynamically stable than if he just tossed it with no spin. Um, you see this in rugby games as well. Uh, good players, when making a rugby pass, will try to impart a spin to it to keep the ball a little bit more stable, have it fly in a straighter line toward where it's going. Um, you don't see that very much with soccer because you just kick the ball and it's a sphere and it goes wherever, which is why football and rugby are better than soccer. Um, you're loose. 
You're losing us a large percentage of the world. I don't care. It's not my podcast. It's yours. Uh, <laughs> sorry, you can edit that out if you want. But the, <laughs> the principles here remain the same. And so when rifling comes into popularity, and I don't know when rifling started, but it really started getting incorporated into firearms in a large scale in the 1800s, kind of the later 1800s. Um, and, and when that happens, you start to have a significant increase in the accuracy of a firearm. Whereas before, if you really wanted to hit something, the best way to do it was to line up a whole bunch of dudes with a whole bunch of smooth bore firearms uh, and have them all fire at once in a volley of lead. Um, and, and that's fine. Statistics dictate that some of that lead will probably hit the thing that you want hit. But now when you have a rifled firearm or a firearm with a rifled barrel, you can start to hit things a lot more reliably with a single shot. Uh, and, and obviously that term uh, of, for rifling kind of got shortened to rifle and is now one of the accepted terms for that, for a, a whole class of firearm, even though most modern firearms of any type include rifling. So uh, your, your little nine millimeter pistol has a rifled barrel. So I was actually going to bring a literary illusion and say, you know, uh, if you really want um, to talk about smooth bore marksmanship, then you should probably read uh, The Last of the Mohicans. And, um, you know, you've got uh, leather stocking is a, is a legendary marksman. And I know it's fiction and whatever, but, you know, it, uh, it shows that at least in the in the 1700s, you know, the marksmanship was a thing. and and um, and it does also talk about them, you know, using uh, weapons to hunt. So, I mean, it was definitely around. So, yes. Yeah. Okay. As per normal, fictional sources are still sources. So that's right. <laughs> no. I mean, yeah. Um, well, let's move on. Okay. Okay. So, next major advancement after. Uh, whatever it was that I was just talking about, rifling. Actually, I mean, I'm rifling. not even sure about my chronological order here. Uh, but the next one that I wanted to talk about was the development of smokeless powder, which is in itself just a lie because it totally generates smoke. But up until about 1884 and the uh, the efforts of a very smart Frenchman uh, when you used the firearm, it would create a giant puff of black smoke. And not only smoke, but also just solid stuff that your, uh, your propellant would discharge down the barrel and leave this sooty black garbage coating everything. And after a couple shots, you know, you got a lot of stuff just clogging your barrel and that's no good and you have to clean it out and that takes time and the british are shooting at you or possibly the yankees are shooting at you um and all of these things are happening and that's not something anyone really wants to deal with but it's part of the whole i mean that's what you get for using a firearm you deal with all of this fouling and you have to deal with all of the smoke and when you have a gun line 
of a bunch of guys all firing these black powder firearms together, you get some pretty thick smoke. And at the time, if you're reliant on hand signals and shouting to relay battlefield orders as a commander, uh, one, good luck with the shouting because there's all this gunfire going off. And two, no one can see your hand signals anymore because of all the smoke. So smokeless powder comes along as an invention, and it is not smokeless. There is still a puff of white smoke, but there is nowhere near as much, and you don't get nearly the same fouling. You don't get the the solid particulates that come along with a black powder shot. It burns pretty clean. And this is the next major advancement in firearm technology. When we can start using... Uh, smokeless powder in our firearms suddenly people can see for the next shot and you know you can fire more shots before you have to clean the firearm and so that comes along uh, towards the end of the 1800s and right around here that powder starts getting incorporated into cartridges now, cartridges are the next are, are another major advancement. And these aren't, again, at this point in chronological order. Cartridges have been around in one form or another, uh, not always consistently used, but they've been around since, well, I mean, hundreds of years. We're talking like 15th, 16th centuries for the first primitive cartridges. And, and all a cartridge is is a shot, meaning... You know, we would typically think of that as a bullet. Uh, a bullet, well, that's not precisely correct because a bullet is bullet-shaped. The shot that you would be dealing with back then is, again, more spherical-ish. Um, but the cartridge contains the shot of some sort, the propellant, and some kind of casing. Now, today, your modern cartridge is typically brass-cased, has powder inside it, has a bullet, on the top and has a primer at the base. You strike the primer uh, with you know, the action of your firearm, either a firing pin or whatever. Uh, the primer lights off the propellant and the bullet zooms down the barrel, leaving the case behind. And then you eject the spent casing and that's it, that's your cartridge. Well, primitive cartridges were more or less the same components, but a little bit different in practice. The casing was often paper, and you could you you'd tear the paper open, your powder would be in there, you'd dump it down the barrel, you'd dump the shot in after it, and then you could you'd either discard the paper or you could send it down the barrel after the shot uh, to use as the wadding that would hold the whole thing in place. Um, well, we, we start to develop solid uh, you know, metal cased cartridges in the 1800s. And this is where you really start to move from muzzle loaders to what we call breech loaders. And a breech loader is where you put the, the, the cartridge in through the back of the barrel, uh, through the action rather than down the muzzle. Um, and almost every modern firearm that you can buy today is a breech loader. Um, I think the only firearms that are in widespread use that are not breech loaders are military mortars. 
and you you shouldn't be buying any of those. Haven't seen uh, many of those around recently. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, not not where we live. Um, but anyway, the the breech loader is is kind of the next major major innovation that is adapted on a large scale. Breech loaders had existed in one form or another for you know some hundred years. They they uh, weren't invented in the late 1800s, but this is where uh, you know the the mid to late 1800s is where they really became popular. One of the first types of mass-produced breech loaders is the revolver, where you put the bullets in the cylinder, you slap the cylinder closed, and suddenly you have six shots in your uh, in your firearm. And and I I misspoke. I said you put the bullets in the cylinder. That's wrong. You put the cartridges in the cylinder. The cartridges containing the propellant inside that casing with the bullet um, crimped on there as well, or or crimped onto the bullet. Uh, and and so the revolver and and the breech loader become kind of the the big popular thing. And this remains a uh, well, in comparison to the history of firearms, evolution starts to pick up pretty quickly because it's a short step from there to the very first self-loading firearms. And what we t what we mean when we talk about a self-loading firearm is a firearm that uses the energy of the shot to load the next round into the chamber to prepare it for firing. And the very first self-loading firearm is the Gatling gun. And you, you've probably heard of this thing. It's a multi-barrel weapon that is cranked by hand to spin the barrels around. But every time you, that thing would fire, its action would cycle and it would pull the next cartridge in to, uh, into the, the breech to prepare for the next shot. And as long as you kept cranking this thing around, it would keep firing. Now, self-loading rifles and, and self-loading guns, self-loading pistols, self-loading firearms continue to evolve. And, and suddenly you get um, additional innovations coming pretty quickly. You get magazine-fed weapons. Uh, one of the most popular handguns in the world is the Colt Model 1911. The hint is in the name. It's made in 1911. Uh, it was a self-loading pistol uh, with a detachable magazine where you could load seven cartridges into this magazine. And every time you fired it, it would cycle and pull the next cartridge into the chamber to be ready for the next time you, you pulled the trigger. And that was all you had to do was pull the trigger to fire the next shot. Um, Self-loading rifles became increasingly popular. And from there, it was a short step to automatic weapons with the first fully automatic weapon uh, being developed by Sir Harold Maxim. And uh, it, it was known as the Maxim gun. And this is what this is what we would call the first machine gun. It, it was a well, it was a fully auto fully automatic firearm. Um, What's the it, difference between a fully automatic and a uh, say a Gatling gun? Well, a, a Gatling gun, a, a Gatling gun specifically, is um, is a multi-barrel firearm. Um, a, an automatic firearm is simply one. 
the, the, there's different ways that these terms are used to mean different things, and it's very confusing. When you talk about an automatic pistol, you're talking about a self-loading pistol, where the pistol will use the energy of the shot to cycle the next chamber into the cartridge so that it can be ready to fire the next time you pull the trigger. When you talk about an automatic rifle, you talk about a rifle that continues to fire shots as long as the trigger is pulled. Um, it is an unfortunate mixture of nomenclature, and it makes it kind of hard to talk about what an automatic firearm is. Usually when we say automatic weapon, we mean one that fires continuously while the trigger is pulled. And that's what the Maxim gun was. It was a self-loading automatic weapon. Um, well, uh, in a, I believe it was rifled, so you could call it a rifle, but it was a bit big for that, for what we would consider a rifle today. But it was a self-loading automatic firearm that would continuously fire from a belted magazine no, that's I'm sorry. Belted magazine is not wrong. Not correct. That is that is I, I erred from a belt of ammunition. Uh, as long as you pulled the trigger, it would continuously fire. And from there, weapons and firearms development has continued. And you have your your modern machine guns today uh, used by militaries around the world. And you have your automatic in the sense of, uh, you know, semi-automatic. Uh, pistols and handguns and, and rifles that you can get anywhere that will fire a very precise shot from a very precise cartridge um, anytime you pull the trigger. And and from about here on, from, you know, the Maxim gun is invented in 1884, uh, and, and going into the 20th century, all through the 1900s, your big advancements really start to come from precision of, of assembly and machining. Uh, your early firearms, your, your your battlefield weapons, had a what we would call a pretty significant uh, error spread to their shots. And I, I forget what the actual measurements are, but the precision required of a military rifle in World War One and World War Two pales in comparison to the precision that you can get from a standard civilian rifle that you can buy in the United States today that is a modern design using modern manufacturing and, and precision engineering techniques. Um, the Your ability to place accurate shots at a great distance has been vastly increased because of the precision of firearms manufacturing. And that's been kind of the the big advancement throughout the the 1900s and recently that that takes us up to today recently the big innovations in firearms haven't necessarily been with the firearms themselves but rather with the aiming devices uh, or or the optics uh, most of the time throughout history if you wanted to aim your firearm you look down the barrel and you pull the trigger and you hope that the thing that you see at the end of the barrel is actually where your shot is going to go. And as the firearms advanced, you get a better and better confidence that, yes, the thing that I am aiming at is where my bullet is going. Uh, kind of culminating in the standard iron sights, whether they be, a, you know, a, a, a blade and notch sight or an aperture sight or, or anything like that. But these basic iron sights, 
which would give you something to line up your weapon with your eyes with the target and have confidence that the shot was going to go where the aim point in the sights indicated. Well, in the last couple decades, uh, our aiming devices have, have advanced greatly and the, the optics that you can now get on a modern firearm by themselves will increase a very basic shooter's accuracy significantly over what that shooter would be able to accomplish with uh, you know iron sights. Um, today we have things, uh, we, we, you obviously have the different scopes, but you also have the red dot sights uh, and you can now find those on everything from rifles to handguns. Um, these red dot sights, uh, they're, they're actually impressive. The way that they're engineered, uh, it simply places a, a red dot on a kind of parabolic clear surface. And no matter which angle you look at it from, the dot will shift so that no matter how you're lined up with the gun, where the dot is, is where the bullet is going to go. And that's kind of been the big recent advancement in, in firearms. After we've gone from, you know, giant boomstick, literally, in China, uh, flamethrower spears, all the way up to uh, fully automatic weapons, all the way up to um, precision-engineered and, and precision-marksman firearms, with optics that use, uh, you know, light and lenses and, and all of these things to, to provide you a precise aim point. Uh, that's kind of where we've gotten to in terms of firearm evolution. Uh, now, what's next? Honestly, I don't know. Be interesting to see. Railguns. Okay, Rail yes. Well, you know what? You might be right. Uh, for anyone wondering, yeah. That's actually a thing, and it's. I, I, I've seen a YouTube demo of of uh, the one that this company was was looking at uh, producing, and and it wasn't actually a, a rail gun. It was a coil gun, which is very different in ways that I'm not going to go into. Thank you, um, but it just uses electromagnetic forces to propel a shot. Um, through the barrel and out to, you know, some range. It's not the the most powerful uh, projectile weapon, but it's interesting that somebody has actually made that. So, uh, but that is your your very brief history of firearms. And I don't know if uh, if Tim rejoined us or not, but. Um, if we want to jump into a question and answer, answer session, we can uh, talk about that oh, I, briefly. I have a question. Yes. So we were just talking about future of firearms. Uh, I'm not saying that Star Wars is real life. I, I wouldn't say that, not even on this podcast where we cite great <laughs> historical works such as Last of the Mohicans for yeah. you know, accuracy. <laughs> um, but... We've had a podcast about lasers. Lasers are, you know, they are very useful, and we've we found all variety of new uses for them. Um, laser weapons, I'd imagine, are a thing. Um, any idea about whether or not a laser handgun can or will ever be a? Uh, 
I, I would suspect that you would need some pretty drastic advances, not just in batteries, but also in capacitors in order to make that be a thing. Um, unless you're okay with your soldiers walking around with giant extension cords. Um, and the, I mean, obviously a laser takes a lot of power, but the other part of that is that you need to get rid of that power into that laser beam incredibly rapidly. And that means capacitors. You need a capacitor that can store a whole ton of power that you've got from your battery and can then discharge it in an instant. And you cannot do that with a battery. You have to use a capacitor for that. And so you're going to need, a, you know, your 1.21 gigawatt capacitor uh, to be able to create a effective laser handgun. I personally don't see it happening soon. I'm not sure that it's a great idea in general. Um, lasers do have their limitations. They're they're not uh, they're they're not Star Wars weapons. They're not like what you see in Star Wars. Uh, if you're in a you know for for example an environment that is foggy or an environment that is dusty like a battlefield often is where there's a lot of particulates haze smoke in the air that will disrupt the laser beam um that'll cause significant impairment to your laser beam in terms of the power that it's able to actually put on a target a bullet will just fly right through that stuff so you know do you want to carl it looks like we're Looks like we're not going to get rich manufacturing suits of armor made from mirrors. You might not. <laughs> I mean, you might. Somebody, what did P.T. Barnum say? Anyway. Ah, disco fever, that's it. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, okay. I, I personally don't see it happening uh, in the near term, even for the hobbyist. And I see it happening even farther away for you know a potential military application so okay well darn sorry um <laughs> now talk a bit to me about laser swords and that's different never mind well we actually have <laughs> talked about laser swords before newton's flaming laser sword for example that was a different podcast okay um it's in the archives look it up so <laughs> Okay, right, Tim, any uh, questions on firearm history? Or Carl, did you have another one? No, go. If Tim has one, I've got one more before we can wrap. So here's this is just um, a speculative question. It's not about the the like like manufacturer or form of firearms, but I've I've heard people idling about history asking the question, which has been the deadlier weapon in history? You know, the sword or the or the gun and um you know i i don't know i'm yeah any any speculation on that which do you think is um, ha, as as in which has caused more more death um i you know, i'd have to do some research on that swords have been around for many millennia in one form or another um what I will point out, though, is that when we talk about the gun, 
even in warfare, um, there's some misconceptions about the number of casualties inflicted by a gun versus by artillery. Um, both of those are firearms. Um, but in general, and, and you're seeing this play out in, uh, in Ukraine right now, you your artillery will do a lot more damage to your enemy formations than your small arms will your guns um what we typically think of as a single man portable firearm an assault rifle or something uh what we're what we have seen and and this may be changing as ukraine is currently in the midst of their counteroffensive and they're clearing trenches up close and best of luck to them Slava Ukraini. Um, but what we had seen before leading up to that was a lot of artillery exchanges and a lot of artillery uh, inflicting the losses on both sides, much more than you would have with uh, individual su- uh, soldiers engaging each other with small arms. Do you think there might come a time where uh, soldiers engaging each other with small arms kind of becomes uh, defunct or or at least uh, uh it's a prominent. question that's been brought up i don't think so no because um a soldier with a a small arm still gives you the idea the ability to control a piece of terrain uh and until you roust that soldier out of that piece of terrain using artillery or whatever that soldier controls that piece of terrain and you know that's a that's a key aspect of war that i don't see changing too much um the other thing that i'll 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 note was even with some of the up close um encounters that you have between soldiers a lot of the armaments being used they're all carrying rifles but a lot of the time they will actually engage with a grenade um and so you're seeing those uh you know, those those are inflicting a lot of the losses as well. Um, it it is less common for one soldier to shoot another than you might think. So it is much more common for an artillery crew to blow someone up with a shell, or or soldiers to knock out other soldiers with grenades. Is my understanding. All right. And that now obviously that varies um, with with conflicts. Different conflicts across the world have had, uh, you know, different types of equipment involved and and different conditions in different environments. So uh, obviously that varies. But anyway. Okay. Um, let's see. I had one other question, and that was about guns on airplanes. Uh, ah, yes. Obviously, airplanes are relatively reason even more recent than guns and firearms but loading uh, putting a gun on an airplane was originally a challenge um any any comment on uh how that uh, was done and if, if that actually affected the development of firearms at all um sure i mean uh, the the very first armed aircraft were literally the observer carrying a pistol and then you know, the anecdote, and I, th- this is the myth, I don't know how true this is, during the First World War, 
the first combat sorties were all observation related. You'd have your pilot flying that little biplane and you'd have an observer observing and taking notes as to where the enemy was so that when they landed, they could say, hey, we, we saw the other troops over here put some artillery on them. And these planes would fly back and forth across the front lines and the German observation planes would fly past the British observation planes and they'd wave at each other because, uh, you know, that's the sporting and chivalrous thing to do. And then somebody brought a pistol and instead of waving, they started shooting bullets. And then it went from there. Uh, the Germans figured out how to mount a machine gun on the fuselage of an airplane. And these are all propeller-driven airplanes, generally with a propeller in the front. Uh, but they figured out how to mount a machine gun on the fuselage of an airplane with an interrupter circuit or gear system hooked up to it so that when the propeller blade happened to be in front of the gun barrel, it would prevent the gun from firing. And so your machine gun would fire in these little spurts, uh, but it would not fire when the blade was, of the propeller was directly in front of the barrel. And this interrupter system worked most of the time. Uh, so that's good for the pilots, I guess. Um, Development went on and on uh, through the Second World War. You had different guns being mounted all over, and you did have uh, different factors coming into aircraft armament. The Browning M2 machine gun fielded by the United States is one of the most legendary military firearms of all time. It's been in use since the 1920s and doesn't look like it's ever going to go away. Um, it was developed as a... a vehicle or land-based weapon but somebody quickly realized that yeah you can definitely throw this on an airplane and in fact because of airflow over the barrel of this thing we can make it fire faster when it's mounted on an airplane than we can safely allow it to fire when it's on the ground uh, because of the air flowing over the barrel uh, as your airplane is moving at speed and so there is a specific variant of the M2 Browning that was developed for aircraft use. And it allowed, uh, and that it was a much fire, sorry, much faster firing version. Um, aircraft weapons kind of developed for a while up until about the 1960s when the United States fielded the M61 Vulcan 20 millimeter Gatling cannon. Um, and, and then aerial weapons development kind of stagnated because of uh, advances in guided missiles. Um, you did have some specific weapons developed for aerial platforms, the A-10 Warthog with its, uh, I, I use the term legendary, but it kind of is because a lot of it is legend. It's 30 millimeter, seven barrel Gatling gun that everyone likes to swoon over, even though it's not that great. And we're going to get some hate for that one from the A-10 fans. <laughs> I'm an A-10 um, fan. I know. It's a cool-looking plane with a giant honking gun on the front. Um, weirdly, the A-10 earned a reputation in Operation Desert Storm as a tank buster. And it did. It busted a lot of tanks. Do you know what it busted those tanks with? AGM-65 Maverick missiles. One under each wing. 
the majority of the A-10 kills were with Maverick guided missiles. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, aircraft weaponry, we, we can do an, a separate podcast on the basics of aircraft weaponry and talk guided missiles, and that would be kind of fun. But uh, in general, you know, you, you do find some advances and, and some things, but, um, you know, the, the really big developments in firearms have been those ones that we kind of talked about uh, for, you know, personal and land-based systems. Okay, sorry, one more question then. Yeah. And not related to this, but and something I should know, and I'm only I feel like I kind of know it, but like when you talk about a like a 12 gauge shotgun or uh, what is what is gauge? What is that measuring? Um, gauge. Okay, I'm gonna go out on a limb here. Somebody correct me if I'm wrong. I understand is gauge is like a measurement of diameter. Um, so you you have this in like wire you have different gauges of wire and it's just how thick the wire is and that's the same with your shotgun barrels a 12 gauge shotgun is a barrel of a certain diameter a 20 gauge shotgun is a barrel with a smaller diameter uh counterintuitively the higher your gauge the smaller your diameter so an eight-gauge shotgun is a monster of a firearm that you absolutely do not want to use because it will tear your arm off uh, because that would be huge. Um, 20-gauge shotgun is comparatively light. Your standard one that you can find worldwide is the 12-gauge. Um, and it is it is absolutely uh, one of my favorite things is skeet shooting. I love doing that. I don't get to do it very often, um, but that's a lot of fun to do with a 12-gauge shotgun. And then your arm hurts for a couple of days afterward, so or your shoulder. Okay, how do you measure the the large artillery then, with like uh, large oh, like howitzers? Yeah, most most firearms are measured in terms of their uh, the bore diameter of the barrel. The bore meaning the hole in the barrel. Right. So every every firearm that you can buy today has is is of a certain caliber. Um, and the caliber is measured in either inches if you're in the United States and backwards or in millimeters if you're civilized anywhere in the world <laughs> or also in the United States. So typical ones that you hear about, nine millimeter pistol. Well, right. that's a pistol where the bore of that barrel is nine millimeters across and your bullet is nine millimeters in diameter. Your heavy artillery is generally measured in millimeters as well. Um, 105 millimeter is your kind of standard light artillery. 155 millimeter is the uh, is the heavy artillery used by all the NATO countries, um, countries that use Russian or Soviet era artillery. Generally, use 152 millimeter uh, caliber shells and, and barrels for their heavy stuff. Um, but yeah, it's all measured in, in millimeters right up until you get to like naval guns on warships. And then you go to inches. Uh, so your your standard destroyer will carry a, a usually just one five-inch gun. And that's something like 200 some odd millimeters. I don't know. It's pretty huge. Uh, in World War II, your battleships would carry um, a number of guns, often 14 inches, uh, 
was popular. U.S. battleships got up to 16 inches. And the biggest naval guns that I'm aware of in the modern era are the 18-inch guns on the Japanese battleships. Um, They completed two of those battleships, and they were both destroyed at different points. See our History of World War II podcast for more information on that. But those were okay. monster guns, some of the largest rifles, and they were rifles that have ever been built. Got it. Okay. So, uh, gauge, millimeter, inch, those are all just the measurements of the barrel. Uh, the diameter of the barrel, yeah. Diameter of the barrel. Got it. Okay. Cool. Well, that's my last question. Tim, did you have anything else to impart? Uh, help me real quick. So caliber and gauge, uh, same thing, or what's the difference? Uh, this is another nomenclature issue. Caliber actually, uh, possibly get into trouble here, but um, caliber technically has to do with the ratio of the like the diameter of the gun to the gun length, something like that. But it also has come to just mean the the diameter of the barrel. So a 50 caliber weapon or a 50 cal is a weapon with a 0.50, apparently 0.50 is now 50, a 0.50 inch diameter barrel. Oh, and a quick Google search says that caliber is supposed to be measuring the bullet instead of the actual firearm. Oh, the the barrel. Right. Okay. Oh, learn something. So measuring our ammo versus the firearm itself. Okay. Cool. Thanks, Matt. And Tim, you were also present. So good job. Uh, Presence is my strong suit. Uh, yes, that's Step public education. Um, yeah. Okay, great. Well, Matt also teased a advanced physics podcast, so at some point you have to pay off on that, Matt. Um. Um. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I've teased Peter coming back on the podcast, so maybe we can make him do it. Um, But thank you, and we've learned a lot about firearms and or guns. And join us back again for our next podcast, where we will not discuss Star Wars as an alternate reality.